roads. For many, many generations, the metaphor of choice for poets and for minstrels, when they've described our experience of life, has been that of roads. Robert Frost spoke of the yellow wood where two roads converged and he chose the road less traveled. The munchkins urged Dorothy to follow the yellow brick road if she wanted to get to the great city of Oz. Bilbo Baggins, the hobbit, ran out of his red round door without his hanky onto the road that led him to the misty mountains and which 60 years later, his nephew Frodo followed to Elrond's house and on through the dark marches of Moria, through the golden wood of Lothlorien, right up to the black gates of Mortar. And then that road took him to the mountain of fire. And then, of course, finally, there's, there's John Bunyan, whose character Christian, his road took him from the city of destruction through the slough of despond and past Mount Sinai to the wicked gate and the place of deliverance where his burden of sin rolled away. And he continued on the king's highway. He escaped the giant's doubting castle and crossed the delectable mountains and the enchanted ground on his way to the celestial city. Roads. Some of our roads are long. Like Pastor Lutz's father, who lived to 106. Or the French woman, Jean Calment. According to Time Magazine, she lived 122 years, 164 days. She was born when Ulysses Grant was in the White House and died when Bill Clinton lived there. Some roads are heartbreakingly short. Too many stories of lives that had too few years or too few hours. For me to even venture an example, those roads are stained with tears. Your road, my road, those are stories still in the telling. Unanticipated trials, unlooked for joys, wait for us around a bend or over the crest of a hill. We hope for long roads decorated with memorable towns and exquisite experiences all along the way, wonderful companions to share them with. And though we avoid the topic like yellow snow, roads end. We know it. We don't like to talk about it. We prefer not to think about it, but when we do, what we long for is to, for, to arrive at a phenomenal destination in the best of circumstances, like, like arriving at Cancun on a private jet or, or as part of a luxury cruise. We like to hear stories that transport us, that inspire us, that encourage us, that motivate us to make the most of our journey. Stories that anticipate the best possible ending. David had a long life, especially for his day. And if, as I have suggested, that 
Psalm 23 was written toward the end of his 70 years, then we can see in it the grand sweep of his shepherd's care and provision through the green pastures and still waters, through David's restored soul and the Lord leading him again, through the companionship, the protection, and the guidance in the ominous darkness. And when he was weary from battle, through the celebration, the shielding, the refreshment the Lord provided. And then in verse 6, David picks up the road metaphor indirectly. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He taps into something that resonates in all of our hearts, that the journey of life can be summed up basically in two parts. There's the road. And there's home. And the encouragement of Psalm 23 is that the Lord gives companionship on the road. And he gives a warm welcome when we get home. Companionship on the road. Well, after his journey in The Hobbit, Bilbo Baggins reflects in verse, the road goes ever on and on, down from the door where it began. Now far ahead the road is gone, and I must follow, if I can, pursuing it with eager feet until it joins some larger way where many paths and errands meet. And whither then? I cannot say. If you've read The Hobbit, you know that Bilbo's road took him through the realm of the great goblin at the heart of the Misty Mountains. In his escape from the goblins, Bilbo came across a magic ring a ring that a tortured creature named Gollum had lost. Bilbo escaped with the ring, but what he didn't know was that the ring had a hold on Gollum, and Gollum would pursue that ring wherever it went. Now, Bilbo didn't use it much and kept it a secret, but eventually he passed it on to his nephew Frodo. By that time, Gollum and others had figured out where the ring had gone. And through the three books, or if you're not a reader, the three movies, of the Lord of the Rings, Frodo and his friend Sam were pursued by those who wanted the ring. Yeah, there was Gollum, but there were two far more powerful and dark characters, Sauron and Sauron, who were after him for the ring. As David recounted his, his life, he realized that he was also pursued. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. The word he used for follow means to pursue, to chase, to persecute. But because David is talking about goodness and mercy and not the Philistines or King Saul, our Bible translators chose follow to keep from leaving a dark impression. But follow doesn't quite give us the full picture. God had dispatched two relentless hunters who would never lose the scent, who tracked David down in every situation to deliver kindness and support, the kind that come only from love, goodness, and mercy. 
Now, we all know what goodness means until we try to define it. And when we're dealing with God, even the standard definitions that we can recite fall short. They're inadequate. See, we tend to conceive of goodness like a doting grandfather, always kind, always generous, understanding and patient. And God is all those things. But God is also the judge who has all knowledge and is utterly fair, whose judgment is based on his absolutely righteous character and a complete awareness of our actions and our intentions. Paul refers to this in Romans eleven twenty two 22 as the kindness and severity of God. When you see an incredible sunset, when your palate celebrates the flavors of your favorite dish, when you are glad to be alive, excited about the day that's facing you, God is good. When you go home for Christmas and the food is all you remember it to be and family and friends laugh over the past and share their dreams for the future and you get that indescribable sensation within that if just for a moment, everything is right. God is good. When your new business has not only survived but gone viral. When you're standing at the altar exchanging vows with the love of your life. When your arms are filled with the squirming fruit of marital love. God is good. And when you stand in the valley of the shadow of death. Your arms as empty as the other side of the bed. And your heart is shattered. God is good. His rod and his staff comfort you. His arms carry you when you can't keep going. In the midst of the pain, he is with you. When we buried our firstborn, he was with us. When my sister-in-law, my wife's sister, lost four children in or just out of the womb, and then she buried her father, and the next year buried her husband of 10 years. And all of her dreams lay withered around her. God was with her. If she were here, she only could tell you how he sustained and how he comforted her as she leaned into him through her pain. She could tell you how she kept going with that great emptiness within. She would also tell you, though, that she was comforted by God to the point that when she saw others in the same pain that she was going through, she was moved to comfort them with the comfort that God had given to her. If we don't buck and run, if we choose to trust him with our pain, we find another experience of how God is good. It's an experience that has to ripen for a while. It has to age like a good wine before you can perceive the richness of his goodness in the valley.
But God is also severe. In his book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer says that those who spurn God's goodness may find that a time comes when he decisively withdraws that goodness from them and allows them to experience the harvest of their rebellion. He promises not to leave the guilty unpunished. And yet, over and over, the scriptures tell us, as in Psalm 103.8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Slow to anger. God doesn't rush to withdraw his goodness even when it's spurned. Paul poses the question in Romans uh, chapter 2, verse 4, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? I don't get many tickets for driving. But when I do, it's almost always when I'm not paying attention. My last ticket, five, six years ago, I was making a left turn out of the parking lot at Jewel. And I had to accelerate across the two lanes of traffic on my side of the street, uh, you know, to make the left turn. But I forgot to take my foot off the pedal. And I came right into the range of the radar gun of the cop that was in the next block. So as I was receiving the ticket, I was thinking of all the times that I was intentionally speeding and got away with it. But getting the ticket was a reminder that God's kindness and forbearance and patience during those times was to lead me to repentance. Since I hadn't repented of my speeding, he withdrew his goodness just a little. Even in his severity, God is good. The goodness that chased David down all through his life, he was vaguely aware of that in certain moments, but when he looked back down the long halls of his life, he saw it more clearly. Goodness had chased him and caught him over and over and over again. But goodness wasn't hunting alone. No, mercy was right alongside. But mercy is a special term. Kesed, the Hebrew word translated mercy. It takes a paragraph to explain. It's, it's the word that God uses when he's describing the covenant that he's made with Israel. Mercy is one of its elements, but it also includes kindness, faithfulness, Love, protection, patience, forgiveness, the list could go on. It's the Old Testament equivalent to the New Testament word grace. Grace, we know, is unmerited favor. But it's how that favor is experienced that makes the term so rich. Grace 
saves us when we're spiritually dead. Ephesians 2, 4 tells us, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. came to mind really just two or three days ago how before I had become a Christian, my childhood and, and teenage years were filled with just pursuing life, having fun, enjoying the experiences that came my way. I had no clue I was lost. God brought the gospel to me. He drew me to himself. He opened my heart and he saved me. And I think of the stories I've heard in our services about how some of you were going on about your lives, unknowing or unwilling to come to God, and how he pursued you and won you over. We're saved by grace. But grace also sustains us during our trials. I told you of my sister-in-law. A couple of weeks ago, I shared Tony Dern's story, his battle with cancer. And then there's Hector Colomb's story that we also know. And then there's Brad and Roberta Hansen's story of how God upheld them and comforted them through the death of their daughter. Paul, the apostle, there was some painful malady that was afflicting him. And three times he prayed that God would take it away. And then he records in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Grace empowers us to trust and obey God when the pressure is on us. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John healed a lame man at the temple, and it created quite the spectacle. Peter capitalized on the opportunity, and he preached the gospel. He proclaimed Jesus as Messiah and Savior. Thousands got saved. But the Jewish leaders were fairly upset about that. They arrested Peter and John, commanded them, stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And then they threatened them, and they released them. Peter and John went back to the church and told them what had happened. They called on God to strengthen them so they wouldn't be intimidated. And then Acts chapter 4.33 says, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Years ago, I was teaching a freshman boys' Sunday school class, Judson Baptist Church in Oak Park. The lesson was on sharing our faith, even when we're afraid. The next week, 
one of the boys came back and said he had an opportunity to share his faith with a friend at school, but he was scared because we had talked about it in the lesson. He chose to open his mouth even though he was really nervous. He didn't say the friend got saved, but God had given him the grace to obey despite his fear. God empowers us. Now, I could talk about how grace will pour out kindness on us through all eternity or how grace patiently waits to deal with our sins little by little rather than overwhelming us all at one time about how we need to be completely transformed. How grace empowers us for ministry so that what is accomplished is completely beyond our ability. It's all of grace. Well, what grace is to a Christian, kessed, mercy, steadfast love, is to David. Goodness and mercy don't just help us in, in a needy moment. Goodness and mercy pursue us as a wolf pursues its prey. They are relentless. God is so determined to shower his kindness on his people that he assigns these two agents to hunt us down wherever we may roam so that God can do us good. Now, just think of the various masters in our lives. How many of them demand that we satisfy them by sacrifice, by devotion, by impressive feats so that they don't rain disaster down upon us? What am I talking about? One young woman I know exceeded her projections in sales for her company last year. So for this year, they raised her projections over what she had submitted and then added a little hint of if you don't perform, we might have to find somebody else. How often you feel like your spouse is saying to you, either give me what I want or I'm leaving or I will make you regret it. In school, we know the drill. Demonstrate mastery of what I taught you or I will fail you. That's the ticket. But you see, the Lord seeks us out not for disaster, but for good. Four examples. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Isaiah 40, 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not 
faint. Or in the New Testament, 1 Peter 3, verse 8, it says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Or Romans 8, 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? My goal is not to overwhelm you with verses, but it's to help you see that this theme holds true in Scripture, whether from the prophets of the Old Testament or the apostles of the New when we are in covenant with God, when we have bowed the knee to Jesus as Lord and have come to him to be made right with God, the blessings of the covenant pursue us wherever we go. And with goodness and mercy hot on our trails, what could the result be other than we make it home? Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Not a lot is said in the Old Testament about what happens in the afterlife. It's clear that human beings created in the image of God have life beyond the grave. It's clear that God has made generous provision for his faithful ones, while terrible judgment awaits those who spurned his goodness. And even in the New Testament, there's actually not a lot of detail about what heaven is like or what we'll be doing. But what is clear in both Testaments is that the privilege of the people of God is that they will be with him. Where Jesus is, is where heaven is. John 14, verse 2, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. For few of us, life in this world was, is, is wonderful. Very few difficulties. Ends at a ripe old age where we die in our sleep with a full agenda for the next day. We were living well until the day we died. For some of us, life is hard from the first day of our memory until the day we no longer remember but for most of us, life is a mixture. A handful of really awful days, a basket full of really good days, and a mountain of average days where we just tend to the stuff of life. Regardless of the ratio of the good to the bad to the mediocre, 
God's people make it home. Our shepherd sees to it. Let me tell you a story of a friend of mine. Now, Francis Thomas, longtime member of Moody Church, has been in heaven for a few months now. But seven or eight years ago, she asked me to be her medical power of attorney so I could make decisions regarding her care as she became too ill to make them herself. About five years ago, Francis had a mini stroke in her apartment. A few weeks earlier, she had gotten Life Alert, that device you can hang around your neck and you can press the button if you have an emergency. In the midst of her mini stroke, she had somehow pressed the button. She doesn't remember doing it. And the paramedics came and took her to the hospital. While she was in this hospital, which wasn't one of the stellar hospitals in Chicago, a specialist happened to examine her and found that she had a staph infection in her leg that was resistant to antibiotics, something that would typically have been overlooked. We found an opening at a reputable rehab facility that could treat the infection while they rehabilitated her from the stroke. Now, Frances wasn't able to live on her own anymore. But she hadn't made plans to move anywhere. I arrived at the rehab facility one day to visit her, and I stopped at the desk to speak to the social worker who happened to be sitting there. The social worker thought Francis was a resident there. I corrected her, no, no, Francis is here for rehab. <laughs> and, and then she's supposed to be moving on, but she needs an assisted living facility. Well, that social worker who happened to be sitting at that desk that day also worked part-time for a brand new assisted living facility. And she said she could get Francis fast-tracked through the application process so she could bypass the waiting list. A few days later, Frances was in her new apartment, and all the services that she needed were right there. But her health continued to slowly decline, and eventually she needed more rehab because she would fall often. Well, Warren Bar, Gold Coast, a few blocks from here, had just been rehabbed and completely upgraded. And they were able to take her and to work with her. And her improvement was amazing, it, truly remarkable. But it wasn't enough for her to return to her assisted living facility. But here's the thing. On the exact day that she had completed her rehab and had to leave, that day, a Medicare residential room in that facility a couple of floors down, became available. Frances moved downstairs two floors into this huge sunlit room with a private bath. She was there until her final trip to the hospital. A few days after that, 
right after she began hospice care. She slipped away to heaven. Peace on her face. Now, I didn't go into detail about all of Frances' life, but it was a difficult one. She had been born with disabilities. She had faced mistreatment and heartbreak numerous times in her life. But she had learned that the Lord was her shepherd, and she saw him provide what she needed at each turn, and then he took her home as he had promised. David began Psalm 23 with these words, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I will not lack what I need. He will take care of me. This is the Lord's promise to us, his people. Are you one of his? Is he your shepherd? If he's not, I can tell you he wants to be. He invites you to come to him. At the end of our service, prayer partners will be right over here, and they can, they can help you get connected with God so that you can be part of his people and he can be your shepherd. Life in a world gone wrong is unpredictable. We all know that. Jesus entered into our world to make a way for us to be reconciled to God. It doesn't mean life won't still be unpredictable. It means that he will shepherd us through it. Green pastures, still waters, times when we need to be restored, valleys as dark as death, weariness from the battle, and through it all, goodness and mercy on our trail until we hear Jesus' words. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. The Lord's my shepherd. I shall not want. Let's pray. God, we're grateful for all the comfort, all the encouragement that you give us in this psalm. We thank you that you relentlessly pursue us with your goodness, with your mercy. We pray, Father, that you would help us to remember, to appreciate how good you are. Help us to uh, appreciate the bounties, the generosity of your grace. And Father, in the midst of all that our world offers and promises, often far more than it can deliver, Help us not to get distracted from the fact that you have a home for us that is truly home. A place where we will find fulfillment in the truest sense of the word. Where we will be welcomed into your presence. 
filled with your joy, recipient of your kindnesses poured out on us through all eternity. We can't even imagine what that's going to be like. But if you were willing to give your son and allow him to die on a cross to provide it, it must be absolutely amazing. And we want to say thank you. We pray, Father, that this psalm that you gave through your servant David would encourage us in our journey with you to trust you in the dark times, to celebrate you in the wonderful times, to walk with you each day. We want to put our Lord Jesus on display in everything that we do. And we thank you for always being with us in Jesus' name. Amen.